0: Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Cherlenshamp. For this series of conversations, we're going to explore how the common good is being enacted in local, tangible, and relational ways. In this episode, John and Peter interviewed Deborah Putney on the Abundant Community webinar about her work with the Greater Rochester Health Foundation. Deborah's work uses the asset-based approach to addressing neighborhood health issues. Much of Deborah's work focuses on how engaged citizens can become effective co producers of their own health and well being. Considering the moment we're living in, where social distancing and isolation are being prescribed in the face of the coronavirus, we hope Deborah's words can serve to remind us all of the power of community.
1: My work for the last eight years has been with the Greater Rochester Health Foundation and a really stellar group of its. Grantees in what's called the Neighborhood Health Status Improvement Initiative. Uh, this initiative was launched in 2008 with a unique approach that uh, is really different even for a foundation focused on health improvement. The funding programs oriented to the social determinants of health. Uh, in other words, grantees are not meant to deliver programs or services, they're funded to organize their communities around the health improvement they want to see internally. So, the social determinants of health, there are, there are several for those of you who aren't familiar with this framework. Uh, certainly genetics is a, social, is, a, is a determinant of health, but we don't focus on that because we can't do anything about it. Likewise, medical care and access to care is something uh, that happens outside of ourselves, but within the community. People can look at the physical, social, and economic environments in that community and themselves do something about those things. So the goal is to create a context for health that supports people making good decisions. Health Improvement Initiative is based on a partnership model, meaning that the foundation is partnering with its grantees and working with them as opposed to just giving them money. It's also based on a learning model, meaning that the foundation is really interested in what's working and why, in addition to the changes that are produced in the neighborhood. So the four groups uh, are at different points along the way in the process, but the foundation is supporting them in what we consider the long term. Ten years is the expected support. Their progress is reviewed every three years. The foundation has really acknowledged that you don't change structural conditions in a a year or two. Its funding also supports what we call evaluation coaches and technical support in asset-based community development. That would be me. And I wanted to say a little bit about these communities just to give you an an idea of the uh, array of things that they're doing and the kinds of uh, progress they're making. So one of these is an inner city community, and this community did start eight years ago. Uh, the people who are involved are neighborhood residents, individuals, families. They've come together in block clubs. They have a neighborhood council, but these are informal groups. These are None of these are 501c3s except for the, the, the organization that actually received the grant, which is the CDC. Early on in their Work when they were conducting an asset map in the first year. They finished their asset map and then they met as a community and they had identified several issues that they wanted to work on healthy eating, healthy exercise, and doing something about the open air drug market that had plagued their community for about 30 years. And it was really interesting at this meeting because the room was set up to provide for three discussion groups and people were invited to sit down at any table and talk about one of those issues. Everybody in the room went to the table that had to do with getting rid of the drug market. So they Mm -hmm. knew what their health issue was. People had voted with their feet. They'd made it really clear. And they actually said that evening that none of the other improvements they might make would have any impact if that drug market was still there. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't do all sorts of things in other areas, but really a big emphasis for this group was doing a variety of things against the drugs. The foundation, uh, in addition to giving the primary grant, also allowed for the uh, grantees to give mini-grants to neighborhood residents in order to design and implement small-scale health improvement ideas on their own. In this neighborhood, if you go back eight years, you would have seen a stereotype of an inner-city neighborhood. A neighborhood that was ugly to look at, that was strewn with trash, that had very few amenities. Today, when you go through the neighborhood, people, people comment all the time. This neighborhood group has managed to um, build community gardens. It has developed a park and playground. It has completed uh, a major trail going all, all the way through Rochester and right through the neighborhood. It has uh, small education Uh, opportunities. It's got uh, numerous activities for seniors, for youth. Uh, It has developed major partnerships, and by that I mean uh, between neighborhood residents, the the mayor, the police, the courts, the judges, the district attorney, anybody you can think of they are partnering with. There's been massive community change in this area. And I want to say that this community is working at all three of what I consider levels of asset-based community development. You sort of have the the entry-level thing, you know, what can we do right here, right now to change our base. Uh, You have the middle level, which is what can we do in partnership to help increase the our momentum and increase uh, what we can do and then you have another level which I think of as the, the policy level what what kinds of policies do we need to change to make things possible in our area they're doing all three
2: when, when you began how did you find the, the right residents what's the launch process look like
1: the grants were given each grantee the first thing they did was to hire a person to lead their team. Wow. Now you could you could call that person a community organizer, you could call them a community connector. That was what their job was. was find people and bring them out we actually encouraged them to bring them out just to do something that would have a positive impact on the community. We did not start by talking about a reduction in the incidence of disease or any kind of usual framing of health.
2: and the connectors at a full- time job?
1: Some of them started out uh part time they very quickly moved to full time, and now most of the grantees have. Uh, at least two people that are that are working pretty much full time on doing this connecting work. Amazing. One thing I didn't mention was that there's kind of a, a framework within the grant that we think of as assess, plan, and do, which is those three things are happening all the time. They were urged to conduct an asset map of their neighborhood. So during that year, I helped them design what that would look like, not get caught up in using their findings as data or getting tangled in that kind of thing, but really looking for the assets and starting to connect them one to another through relationship building. As they started their planning year, uh, that was an opportunity once they had some kind of critical mass of residents at the table and acting on their own. They sat down together and thought about what they would want to do together over time to move towards a healthier community. And they were completely free to choose almost anything they wanted in the categories of the physical, social, or economic health. So, you know, each group came up with a plan and figured out how they were going to uh, implement that plan, which meant that the plans had to be at least initially kind of small scale. They couldn't be big enough plans. And then the third year, they really launched uh, full force into implementing their plans. But nothing really changed. Uh, it was still residents doing the majority of things on
2: uh, how much money is involved? Yes, okay. these are,
1: were a very generous grants. I am sorry, that I don't actually remember what the exact amount was. But in the the first year, uh, the asset mapping year, they I think the grants were about seventy to eighty thousand dollars. So there was That's- money really to support generous money to support the organizer and to provide for these mini-grants. Once the group had developed their plans and were in the implementation phases full force, uh, the grants went up to about $160,000. So, again, this is very unique in terms of the amount of funding and how long-term the funding is. It
2: shows great consciousness on the foundation to be willing to commit a couple million dollars over a 10-year period.
1: Yes. And even with that investment, it is remarkable and quite unique that they are not expecting health outcomes in a year or two. They absolutely understand how entrenched the issues are in terms of the social determinants of health, at least in terms of how they function in a negative way. They sort of built backwards, hoping for long-term improvements in the incidence of, say, stroke or diabetes in these neighborhoods, Uh, we have to really think clearly about what we need to do to get there and how long that's going to take.
2: That's wonderful, because the big insight was that uh, health is not fundamentally determined by the healthcare industry.
1: Absolutely.
2: That's a big insight, because health is the easiest thing to get money for but it usually goes to hospitals and clinics.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't believe anyone would question the contribution the field of medicine has made in determining health outcomes, but I think the how behind that is very important. And as you say, the field of medicine isn't really oriented to the production of health. It, it, it's mostly focused on responding to health issues.
2: So I'm interested in the, in the framework you have of physical, social, and economic. Tell me what you mean when you talk about uh, improvements in the uh, physical and social.
1: When we talk about, uh, you know, none of these uh, are absolute categories with very finely tuned definitions. But when we talk about the improving physical health, people can actually interpret that either as improving their own physical health. But but we think it fit more as the physical context for health, so literally the place, the neighborhood I navigate, what does that physical environment offer me in, in terms of opportunities to be healthy? Some uh, neighborhoods clearly offer people lots of opportunities. They're safe, they're green, they have sidewalks, people can get out and exercise, they, they can get to a grocery store. Other neighborhoods do not have those amenities. And so the physical environment have- isn't supporting health very, very much. So we are inviting people to consider what they would want to see in their environment that could support health more and support healthy choices and to do what they can do to make that happen. The social determinants of health or the more specific category of social health. Uh, We know from much research that people who are connected, who have good relationships, who know people, who work together with others. We know that 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 is a positive determinant of health. We also know that in some neighborhoods, people are disconnected for a variety of reasons. Um, They don't have opportunities to work together. And so, again, this is a very broad category, but we're inviting people to come together and figure out how to build that social cohesion and eventually some kind of individual and collective efficacy, which then uh, has a clear positive impact on health.
0: You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. As we consider the power of coming together to find collective efficacy, it's impossible to avoid the current situation we're facing right now. We hope these words by Wendell Berry will help us to imagine what belonging could look like. It's called, A Poem on Hope. It is hard to have hope. It is harder as you grow old, For hope must not depend on feeling good. And there's the dream of loneliness at absolute midnight. You also have withdrawn belief in the present reality of the future, which surely will surprise us. And hope is harder when it cannot come by prediction any more than by wishing. Stop dithering. The young ask the old to hope. What will you tell them? Tell them at least what you say to yourself because we have not made our lives to fit our places. The forests are ruined, the fields eroded, the streams polluted, the mountains overturned. Hope then to belong to your place by your own knowledge of what it is that no other place is and by your caring for it as you care for no other place. This knowledge cannot be taken from you by power or by wealth. It will stop your ears to the powerful when they ask for your faith and to the wealthy when they ask for your land and your work be still and listen to the voices that belong to the stream banks and the trees and the open fields find your hope then on the ground under your feet your hope of heaven let it rest on the ground underfoot the world is no better than its places its places, at last, are no better than their people while their people continue in them. When the people make dark the light within them, the world darkens. Now, back to the conversation.
2: If, uh, if you think that social capital produces a series of outcomes that normally are defined by programs, outcomes that have you know to do with health, knowledge, housing, economic support, etc. How do you deal with funders who always want to come into the community in a silo, in a, within a category, when so much of the research shows that if you increase the social capital, you'll probably get more positive outcomes in their program areas than if you came in with a program?
1: The fact is that the neighborhoods that I'm talking about right now do have the enormous benefit of having funding from a funder that gets it and that is actually willing to fund resident action. I haven't found that many other foundations, certainly not government funders that I'm aware of, that are doing any kind of support for real grassroots, place-based, Resident driven work. There are a lot of foundations who use the buzzwords, you know, community, local, but they don't really, really indicate through their requirements that they trust people to actually make a difference in this regard. I wouldn't say that there are long lists of funders doing these things. Now, there's certainly funders doing good work, and there's certainly funders doing things in terms of the social determinants of health. For me, the missing piece in what they're doing is that they're still fairly prescriptive, and they usually start at the partnership level as opposed to the resident level. It's a top-down kind of thing where, you know, the people who are the experts, the professionals are in the position of trying to get residents partner with them as opposed to What we're trying to do, which is to have the residents inviting agencies and institutions to partner with
2: them. Exactly. So let me uh, ask about the evaluation question, and how are you thinking about measuring what difference this is making?
1: The foundation has, uh, as part of this initiative, has provided evaluation coaches, meaning that they are working directly with the grantee group to define what they are trying to achieve, to define what they consider success, and then to define the measures that they will use to evaluate whether they're achieving what they want to achieve. So it's not a top-down evaluation. It's a community-based participatory evaluation.
2: What what kind of measures are they coming up with? Let
1: me just tell you a little bit about uh, what we call our evaluation framework. And this is something that your listeners can download from the website. If they want more information, they can go to the Greater Rochester Health Foundation's website, and they can click through what we fund to the Neighborhood Health Status Improvement Initiative, and they'll find more information on the program, and they can take a look at this evaluation framework. We decided that if the ultimate objective is 15, 20 years out, we would love to see fewer (laughs) health disparities between this neighborhood and other parts of the city and the state, and reductions in problematic conditions, diseases like diabetes, stroke, asthma. So that's sort of the, uh, the distant goal is to improve that. But since we're using the ABCD approach and since we recognize that those things are not going to happen for a very long time, we have kind of built backwards to the kinds of things we do think we can measure along the way. So our model has Four steps before we get to change in health status. We start out with what we call a change in the environment, exposures, and experiences. So that's really the context. So because people start out by just doing what they can do in their neighborhood, we're looking to see how that neighborhood environment changes. So that might be, if we're talking about socially, we're looking at social cohesion, we're looking at engagement, collective efficacy, are people coming out and doing things? We're looking at the physical environment, is it cleaner, does it seem to be safer? Are living conditions improving? Economic, as I said, is very difficult. Uh, We originally defined that as opportunities for self-sufficiency and we have not made a huge amount of progress on that. We also add cultural factors to this environmental question, so we're looking at prevailing community norms. So that's the area. Things we're looking at in terms of indicators, uh, we started out with baseline indicators that, ta- that uh, look at the number of locks, for example, in a neighborhood that have uh, trash or show no trash, and we're looking over time, like does the evidence of trash and litter uh, decrease over time based on what the residents are trying to do? We look at whether or not any particular block is more visually appealing. Improvements could result from planting flowers, from painting, or any number of other things. So really, number number one is this change in the environment. Number two, we would say once you've done some changes in the space, you can progress to a change in people's attitudes, feelings, and understanding about uh, their world and their future. So this is you know, moving a couple of years beyond, and we're talking three, six, eight, eight years out. We hope p- people in the neighborhood feel differently. So that might be in terms of their hope for the future, whether they feel uh, a sense of cohesiveness and connectedness, whether they feel safe, empowered, capable, in control. And so we have measures that are attached to those things, and we're measuring changes uh, over time, From that, the flow moves into, again, moving out in the years. We then go to changes in, in personal behavior. We think, contrary to many uh, health interventions, that you don't start by telling somebody to stop smoking or to eat better. That changes in behavior quite possibly come after these other things happen. So the changes in behavior include all sorts of things getting more healthy physical activity, eating better, tobacco use, substance abuse, all kinds of things. And again, we are measuring, for example, with the nutrition category. One measure is the number of fruits and vegetables somebody ate on the previous day or the number of cigarettes they used on the previous day. Uh, So we have baseline measures for these. We're not yet seeing too many changes. We're seeing changes in the nutrition category and the physical activity category. We're not yet seeing changes in too many of the others. But we're definitely seeing changes in the environment and changing in attitudes.
2: Who does the uh, looking?
1: That is part of why we call them evaluation coaches. They work with residents. Every community does a community survey, usually every two to three years, but it is residents going out door to door and talking to their neighbors. The residents are trained. Residents actually participate in developing developing those instruments, just, and then they're trained to go out and gather the data.
2: It's really good. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a huge innovation is to say that neighbors can ask neighbors to collect the data. You don't need a third-party independent professional.
1: The last area that we flow into once you've gone through those first three is we call it change in the medical conditions that precede disease. So if people's behavior changes and if all these other things have changed, we hope to see you know, reduced blood pressure, reduced cholesterol, all of, the, all of these preconditions. So eventually we hope we will be measuring those.
2: You know, one of the things that strikes me, is it's so much easier to put up money and run a program and have people to come and graduate from a program where wow. this is so much more complicated and nuanced and subtle and patient.
0: Thanks for listening. You can check the show notes for the Greater Rochester Health Foundation's website and Deborah's personal website. You can learn more about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. The Common Good is hosted by Rabbi Miriam Terlenshamp and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Borman. See you next time for a conversation with Parker Palmer.